From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Somil Trevetti, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project. I am beyond excited to be here hosting the podcast for the next few weeks, and we have got an inspiring one for you today. In more than 25 states, incarcerated folks lose their voting rights while serving time. In others, the bar on voting extends beyond the prison doors to probation and parole, and in some cases, it's indefinite. I want to be clear, this is a stain on our democracy. But in Washington, D.C., where I live, people who are incarcerated never lose their right to vote, even inside. And for one man, Joel Castone, the ability to take part in the democratic process has made all the difference. Joel Castone was incarcerated when he was 18 years old. He's now 45, and in November of last year, just two months ago, Joel was released after serving over 26 years. While incarcerated, he received a degree through the Georgetown Prison Scholars Program and started a mentorship initiative called Young Men Emerging. And because D.C. changed that law to allow incarcerated people to vote, he ran for office and he won. He is now an advisory neighborhood commissioner in D.C. representing the 7th Ward, including the jail that he just walked out of. He's the first incarcerated person in D.C. history to win elected office. Joel joins us today to talk about his experience, what he's focusing on as a newly elected commissioner in D.C., and how he's changing the public narrative about incarcerated people. Joel, thanks so much for joining At Liberty. As a fellow Hoya and antagonizer of jails, I couldn't be more jazzed for this interview. So welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm going to tell you that introduction has me so inspired myself, right? Sharing in that, that delight of being here, the liberty, the freedom, being free to be an elected official. Happened when I was on the inside. Now I'm on the outside doing the work and on this podcast. I can't, I can't say my, this is a marvelous Monday for me. That's fantastic. I'm glad At Liberty resonates with you as much as it does with our listeners. So there's a lot I want to get into in this conversation, particularly your work currently in the financial literacy space. But I want to start with your background. You know, your election for Ward 7 made national headlines in June. Um, despite the seat being created 10 years ago, this is actually the first time it's been filled, largely because folks in the jail can finally vote. But now they can, and they elected you. So how does that make you feel to make that kind of history? Isn't it amazing when the democratic process is taking place the way it ought to take place? And when all people have a seat at the table. And then also I want to add into the fact that prior to me being able to run for the seat because redistricting did not allow individuals who were inside of the treatment facility or the central detention facility, commonly known as DC jail, they could not vote. So um, throughout the world, throughout our nation particularly, we have the redistricting taking place. And then some zones or some wards that were once part of Ward 8 now become part of Ward 7, Ward 6, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it, it varies. But that redistricting allow incarcerated people to have an opportunity to run. So for me, it feels an honor. It's a privilege. D.C. is allowing people who are currently incarcerated to be able to participate in civic engagement. How important is that? Look at someone like myself, as you said in the introduction, incarcerated since the age of 18, now I'm 45, 27 calendar years inside, coming home, able to hit the ground running 
because I was already participating in these things before I came home. That's so important. So we really want to increase public safety, allow individuals once on the wrong side of track, an opportunity to get on the right side of track, and the probability of them making a successful transition back home increases. My story highlights that. That's incredible. So, you know, you mentioned issues of reentry and democracy and rejoining society as animating some of the reason why you ran. What about your experiences while incarcerated also made you want to run? How did you even hear about the ANC seat in the first place? Wow, that's that's a great question. Then I want to give a shout out, if I may, to council member Charles Allen and Robert White. I had the opportunity to do a podcast with my colleagues on the inside. So what we wanted to do, we wanted to inform incarcerated people what it looks like to vote. Here we are, backdrop. We didn't have the opportunity to vote previously. Most people like, why should I vote? Why should I care? These are some of the sentiments that were just, you know, that was going through the halls of the facility. So we said, hey, we want to do a podcast. The administration greenlighted. So when we did a podcast, who you want to invite? Well, I want to invite Charles Allen. I've met him so many times. This is a guy who came in the inside several times, him as well as Councilman Robert White. But I already had a rapport with Charles Allen as I consider him not only to be just a councilman, but also a friend. And so they immediately signed on and we did our interview. And in the process of us preparing for the podcast, we discovered that not only could we vote, but we could also run for public office. <laughs> so I'm like, OK, all right, let me think about this here. And I went back and, you know, I'm an avid yogi. I, I, I practice yoga every day. And so in my yoga session, I just had a, little, a feeling like, why not? Why not do it? So I, I, I download the paperwork and I filled it out, submitted it. And once they came back, like saying, no, we received your submission, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, oh, snap, <laughs> this is true. And then the floodgates was open for them. Actually, my name was cast in the ballot. It was official. And from that moment, from there to now, a lot of stuff took place. But I can say it started with, they say that the old maximum say a thousand mile journey takes one step at a time. I took the first step for democracy. And this is where we are now. That's an unbelievable story. So this lightning bolt hits you that you can run, that you can participate in democracy, um, and you take that first step. Tell us about the next couple steps. What was your approach to campaigning? Wow, the campaigning was, you know, ironically, I already had like some writing set aside. I'm used to writing like this is my bio and stuff like that. So not only was I running for campaign, I was also fighting for my freedom. So by me advocating for my freedom, independent of my political aspirations, I already had a lot of stuff written up that I was submitting to the court system as it relates to mitigating factors and why I should have received or why I was actually seeking um, a, a, a reduced sentence. So I used some of that language to pretty much let my fellow colleagues on the inside know who I am. And as a writer of the of the of the inside scoop, which was the, the newspaper that we we published inside the facility, a lot of people knew who I was. So I would just simply remind them that, hey, this is who I am. I'm the person who does the money bag series. I was educating the, the population about finance, 
Um, I've done the Young Men Emerging Program, et cetera. These were some of my accolades that I was putting out to let folks know why I was running for public office. And the administration came up with a brilliant idea and say, hey, would you like to do a video recording? Like, yes, I think that's, that would be good because we had to also campaign for people on the outside. So kudos to the former um, um, director, um, Quincy Booth. He was very instrumental in allowing that to take place. And so we, we not only myself, but also the other individuals running against me, right? We put our videos together and just wanted to inform the public who we were and what our platform actually was at that time. And now I'm here to build upon my platform. Most of the votes that you received were from your fellow detainees. So what was it like when they found out that they could vote? And on top of that, that they could vote for you? Great question. There were some hiccups. One of the main hiccups was the fact that not many people knew that they can actually run for public office. So the first, hur- the first hurdle was informing incarcerated people that you can vote. The second one was that you can also run for this seat that has been vacant for 10 plus years. So when I found out and I cast my name in the ballot, I was one of the persons who did a little bit more digging and also took that first step. So I was able to get one of my fellow mentees to vote for me. That was enough because no one else in the entire facility even went through filling out the paperwork to try to run. But the glitch came. They say, okay, he won. However, he did not use the correct address. So I was disqualified. I tried, we tried to remedy that with, with affidavit, another, a lot of the other measures. The Board of Elections said, no, this was the blessing in disguise. Because I won and I was disqualified, it caused a ruckus in the media space. So now local news started getting involved. That widely publicized the fact that I won and that someone in the inside can win elected seat. What that did was it informed the entire prison. So now people are like, oh my goodness, you won? And you and they're going to do it again. I would run. And I was happy because that was my that was my goal in the beginning. My goal was to make civic engagement popular or just something that we can do. I wanted to raise awareness. So I felt like my job was done. So I didn't really care or give much thought towards whether or not I was going to win the second time around or not. Either way civic engagements was coming front and center. And historically, minority groups have been disenfranchised deliberately. There have been so many things and barriers put in place to keep us out of the democratic process. So there's such a strong disdainment. And it's like, it's counterproductive in a sense that the very thing that we need, such as economics and politics, because of historical things that took place against people of colors has caused them to completely now have no hope in it. There's no hope. There's no, they don't think that they can actually um, get ahead by participating in politics or economics. But these are the things that governs our well-being. So now I just felt like, I like to look at the glass being half full. Let's try it again. 
You know, that's that's get back involved. So my story was like, hey, I, I know you guys feel this way. We feel like this is not for us, but uh, let's give it a shot anyway. And instead of me saying, let's give it a shot, let me do it myself. And when I did so and I was disqualified and I saw how I think a lot of the people on the inside, they just got a sense of like pride seeing me in the newspaper. It was like the, the reception that I, that I received afterwards, it was like, they were more happy. I mean, they felt so happy, right? And I just got a kick out like saying, you know what? You can do it too. And that's why I didn't really care much about whether or not I won. I just wanted to have more people at the table because we're thinking this way then that, that, because our actions are governed by our belief system. So if I believe that this can work for me and I, now I'm less likely to go into the black market. I want to participate in the financial markets. I want to participate in the larger uh, economy versus these silos that 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 has been detrimental to us, right? And and if I can get us thinking that way and acting that way, then we have a lot more Joels and Joelitas, uh, um, you know, males and females that's doing this right here that comes from where I come from. What an incredibly optimistic outlook, um, despite everything that you faced. So let's go from the bla- glass being half full. To totally full. Tell us about the moment that you won. Oh, wow. Uh, I was actually, I, I get up in the morning early. And so one of the officers in the unit came to me. He said, Mon right? And I'm like this, this get you fun. You know, he's like, my brother, what did you want? I'm like, what you talking about, right? He's like this, man, the, the lieutenant's here. They want to speak to you and stuff like this. Well, I got to brush my teeth and wash my face. <laughs> I got to take care of my hygiene before I entertain anyone right there. He, I said, did I win? He said, man, you, you won. Everybody talking about it. And, this, and so that's how I found out. I found out early in the morning from a French-speaking African guy um, who he and I always conversed in French. And I'm like, whoa. So I, I went up and called the queen, which, you know, I called my mom my queen. And I, I called the queen and the queen was like, I heard on the news that you won. Oh, she listened to the radio. She heard it. And um, yeah, I mean, from that moment right there was the fast circuit to interview after interview after interview. I was on a lot of the, uh, the local stations and oh, I just it just felt good as being an ambassador as it relates to uplifting the humanity, particularly of, a, of incarcerated people, because oftentimes it's forgotten that they are people first, right? And so you can lose your sense of humanity in inhumane settings. When my good friend Mark Howard put up together the Prison Justice Initiative, when he put together this progressive program allow people from the outside to come in and also open up the floodgates to allow uh, deep pocket investors and other um, people who pretty much just care to want to give to that initiative to help incarcerated people to get education and all those things like that. I'm like, that's such a brilliant idea because at some point, these individuals, they will be returning back to society. How do you want them to return back to society? You want to return back to society with thinking like citizens, one, educated, which we know education is probably the strongest component to reduce recidivism. So I, I think it's it's a great thing because that looks like when I walk around, no one sees what this guy was incarcerated for 27 years. Or this guy, look, you know, they like I'm received the way I conducted myself, you know, the way I present myself. And it's like a favorable treatment almost everywhere I go. We want more people like that. It's good for society as a whole. 
I appreciate you mentioning your experience with the Prison Scholars Program. You know, incarceration uh, deprived you of the chance to go to college, but you got a second chance. Can you tell us more about the classes you took? You've already dropped some French on us. Um, any other languages uh, that you want to let us to know about? Right. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, the, the French part was so great because Mark also speaks fluent French, right? And so um, I would talk about the classes first. They did a great job. They came in and first we had we had non-credited classes. So that we weren't getting any credits for these classes. But the thirst for knowledge was so strong that we kept coming. DC, under the college career readiness program, they allow both male and female incarcerated students to be side by side with outside students. It was for credit for them in the beginning, non-credit for us. But we love it. The professor was like saying, hey, we don't see a difference between the outside students or the, and the inside students. All we see is students, right? although we were dressed differently. And later on, Mark instituted for credit classes. And so that allowed us to be able to not only accumulate credits, but also to work towards our degree. Let's shift back to the present now. You're an elected official representing a district on the east end of Capitol Hill that encompasses not only the D.C. jail that you just walked out of, but also a women's homeless shelter and a new residential building. What does the role of commissioner for these areas entail? That is a great question. Well, I'm meeting people. My constituents in Park Kennedy, I'm meeting people. I'm greeting people. I'm also setting up a, um, a, les- a listening session that will take place next month that I may be able to introduce myself formally to anyone, to everyone. I've Thus far, I've only made informal introductions, but I'll make a formal introduction to my constituents here. Um, due to COVID, I have been unable to actually meet the women and the families at the, the Harriet Tubman Women's Shelter, but I look forward to that opportunity. We call ourselves the ambassadors of this building here. And so hearing their concerns and being a part of, of listening to to exactly like, how can I be an effective advocate for them? Because that's what I am. I'm an advocate for the people. It's not about what I think so much as a commissioner. It's more so about carrying out my duties, advocating for those with whom have voted for me. I come out with a responsibility. So that responsibility requires me to do this and to do that. And my primarily is the advice I got from my good friend again, Charles Allen, in his speech during my swearing in ceremony was to listen. <laughs> he said, just listen. So that's why I'm out. I will have a listening session so I can simply what? Listen. I hear you taking very seriously your responsibility to all your constituents, right? The January 6th rioters. It occurs to me that right now you represent those folks being held at the D.C. jail right here and now. So on the one hand, these are folks who tried to undermine the very democracy that got you elected, in some cases pretty violently. And yet you experienced firsthand the miserable conditions that they and everybody else inside are dealing with. Have you thought about this dichotomy at all? I have. Like anyone, whether the Jan Sixter guys or someone that come from you know, the streets of Washington. They deserve to be protected. They do not need to have their humanity, humanity impeded upon. And so from that standpoint, I don't think that they should be treated any less than anyone else. But what I would say is that 
with them now being here, I think that we can utilize our political capital to advocate for what's best for all. And it's not, a, you know, it's, it's, it's on record. U.S. represents 5% of the world population, yet their prison population represents 25% of the prison population. We are a nation that over-incarcerates people, particularly our minority groups. And so now, having gone through this experience, it's allowing others to see that, wait a minute, we really got to fix this because this is out of whack. Is this, is this truly in line with democracy? And I think that the record shows that it doesn't. So this is why we have a lot of measures to try to release our swelling prison system. It's about principle, not politics. Exactly. So I work a lot with formerly incarcerated people, and I think our movement often tokenizes folks like you, assuming that all you want to do is talk about the place you just left, prison. So I want to avoid that presumption and just ask, what issues do you hope to focus on now that you're an elected official? Economics. Economics and financial literacy, as well as voter rights. But I think that one of the things I realized that when I started the Young Men Emerging Program on the inside, it started as a pilot. Now it's a proven concept. The thought came to my mind is that once I was able to incentivize my young people, my mentees, for their good behavior, I created a mock financial system. And we call it, they call it YME money. So I have, I have this money <laughs> and I pretty much made it valuable for them because I actually tied it to non-commissary products. And now these guys, when you write a report, when you get your um, GED, when you do um, community cleaning, when you participate in community conversations, I reward you. I give you money. Open up a bank so they can go to the bank and make deposit because it's a known fact that primarily people that come from disinvested communities, they don't have a relationship with their bank. So I said, well, let's take a, let's make it, let's have a bank here so they can get in the habit of making deposits and making withdrawals. So I wanted them to have an association with financial things. So the bank was the best way I did it. They haven't been incarcerated as long as I have. I haven't, at that moment, I haven't touched money in years. But they was recently removed from society. Yet they had faith in this fiat currency that I created. So when they were like, hey, I'm writing my, can you check my reports? Can you check my reflection? We call it reflections, right? I'm looking at reflections, sign it, put $40 on it, go to the bank, you got, and so they get the money because they want the products. So I'm saying, what happens if I can have young people in society, I can incentivize their behavior with my money, this right here, now they, they're geared towards doing good deeds in the community, community conversation, community cleaning, good grades, etc. If I'm able to affect change in behavior from individuals who have some harsh crimes that they were charged with, recently removed, hardened guys, and they begin to soften up and be open towards this, um, this doctrine that I'm teaching of political awareness and economic stability. And they open up to this stuff. What if we can get people and invest on the front end before they become just as involved? So my mindset and my platform is saying that let's take the currency catcher's brand, which is the book I wrote on the inside. I was teaching guys about financial literacy, primarily how to invest in the stock market. 
right? What these investment vehicles looks like. What if we had that, not to just involve people, but in our elementary schools, having our young people mentor themselves and being good mentors and want to do community cleaning, want to do community conversation, et cetera, et cetera. That'll stop people from coming to prison in the very beginning. So that's what it looks like for me now, because even though I receive a lot of accolades for my reentry work, but I believe no entry trumps reentry. So we invest on the front end instead of the middle and the back end. We can decrease the numbers and ultimately as many people are advocating the abolition of costly spaces. We can get rid of it, but we have to invest in the front end and give our young people the hope. So this is about money, but it's not about money. It's about empowerment. What are some of the next steps from turning YME money and a program that started inside a jail to a program that exists outside? Well, first, I'm, I'm working on an organization as well as I have a nonprofit as well as a for-profit entity. And I'm also working for, as I stated, a partnership with a fiscal, um, not necessarily fiscal, but a reputable financial institution that helped me to be able to scale the ideas that I have um, and also, I'm doing financial literacy, working on what it looks like for me to do financial literacy to help individuals to pretty much understand that wonky world of finance, right? Breaking it down and make it more understandable for the people who don't have a, a desire for that. You know, I, I enjoy doing that. It's like you say, if you do what you like doing, you never work for a single day. And also just um, just sharing my story, you know, different platforms such as this here, um, positioning myself as, as, as a sought out speaker that I may be able to speak on different platforms and, and, and share my vision, you know, share my vision and implement those visions, right? Put them into motion and add value. I want, it's all about leaving a, leaving a legacy. Unfortunately, being sentenced to life of imprisonment at an age when I could not even comprehend what it really meant to have life. In that process, it's like I lost my life. It's like literally I died. So now the life that I'm living is a rebirth. It's a regeneration. And that feeling alone, like when I go places, I'm recently removed from a controlled environment to a new environment and I'm in locations and I don't even know where I'm at. I can't do this on my own. And I'm very grateful for my team and my supporters. And ultimately, even though I'm proud to be a Washingtonian, but I'm, I'm even more proud to be a global citizen because we all are citizens of this world. And if we can see that, actually, it doesn't matter what culture you come from. It doesn't matter what one's ethnicity may be, right? We're all a part of the human family. And so I can begin to enjoy, you ask the language, I, I, I'm learning a little bit of Mandarin, right? I don't speak as much as I want to learn. Right? I speak a little bit. I have a little bit of stuff that I can hear in there. And, and I love that. I love, I love learning languages and, and, and cultures. And, 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 and I met a woman in my building who's, who speaks uh, Hindi. And I learned a little bit of Hindi. I had one word after Apkiseho, right? That's <laughs> Apkiseho. And I was trying to say some of the things I remember in the past and I kind of forgot it, but it was just like she lit up and I lit up like, oh, you So it's like I, I, I enjoy people and languages and oneness. 
Joel, my mom's going to love that part about the Hindi, and I wish you best of luck <laughs> learning that one. So, Joel, throughout this conversation, I get a palpable sense of joy from you. As we close out, would you just tell me about your joy, your smile, where that optimism comes from? Well, I, I can't, I, I got to give glory to God. You know, I'm a believer, as I stated earlier, the one thing that's constant in my life is I do take time out to meditate and to read and to do spiritual devotions every day. I do not, I do that every day, right? And I think that like the old saying, remember the saying, mind over matter, right? If, if you think you're sick, then you will be sick. If you think you're healthy, then you will be healthy, right? Let's take on a new attitude because our attitude determines our altitude, right? And so what are you saying to yourself? It doesn't really matter what other people are saying to you, but what are you saying to yourself? What do your self-health or your self-care looks like, right? And so I, I, I make my self-care a top priority. I think that what I've experienced since I've been free is that, and it could be these cell phones, it could be this, right? it could be these things, but I think that we're not engaged. We're not in the present moment. And so what happens is that we lost the sense of what it means to be a neighbor. And I think that what I've noticed is that in the hustle and bustle, people lost what it means to be people. Mm-hmm. We don't even acknowledge someone. And so I've, I've, I try to make it my business that just acknowledge someone, to come with that good vibes only. You know, if you put good vibes out there, good vibes will come back to you. And so that's my philosophy. Remember, I say your actions governed by your belief system. So that's how I believe. My, my, my self-talk is... I have to be my greatest cheerleader because there's so much negative and stuff that's out there that can come at us. So if you're not building up yourself, then you're at a huge disadvantage. You know, after two really tough years, I think our audience will be really happy to hear that. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining the podcast and best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. I I love the podcast. This is a great investment at Liberty, right? This is what Liberty looks like in motion. You have to be at liberty, at it, right there in the moment. And we're here, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you for your great work. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, be well and do good.